Radio Buddhist Youth Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You're listening to the sound of universal compassion. Today, we will continue listen to Tangent's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. Please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3, or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. One moment they're friends, and then the next instant they become enemies. Since they become angry even in joyful situations, it is difficult to please ordinary people. So says Shantideva about people whose only concern is the happiness of this life, who think that to seek a spiritual path transcending our present earthly experience is just silly. Hello and welcome to the program. In this series of programs, we've been discussing a work by the Indian pandit Shantideva called The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. The verse I've just recited comes from the chapter on meditative concentration, and Shantideva is telling us why it's important to give up attachment to worldly friends and relatives if we want to develop such a concentration. In fact, if we decide to develop calm abiding, the single-pointed concentration in which you can place your mind undisturbed on anything for as long as you like, we have to stay well away from such people. That means both physically and mentally. Physically, we can, of course, take off to a retreat center or a hut in the mountains where no one can disturb us. But the mental giving up is not so easy. It's quite possible that while sitting cross-legged out in the bush on a mountainside, one's mind continually hops back to friends, relatives and coffee shops in the middle of the city. So Shantideva gives us an alternate way of looking at our ordinary friends. He asks us to consider whether they are consistent and reliable. Well, are they? Can you without doubt say that your present best friend will still be a friend in two or three years' time? For instance, how would your feelings for this best friend change if he or she did something that really got your back up and then did it again and again? History is full of the stories of people who are friends one moment and die enemies the next. And often it doesn't need much to make the transformation happen. Even when they know you're trying to improve yourself and make life much more meaningful, ordinary people can be scornful and dismissive. Soon after I became a Buddhist, a lady I regarded as a friend asked me to tell her about my new interest. But as I explained, from the beginning she made mocking interjections and I soon realized that she didn't really want to know about it at all. She had just seen an opportunity to play mind games and be scornful. Needless to say, what friendship there was soon melted away and we lost touch. The joyful situation Shantideva talks of in the verse refers to situations that lead to long-term joy, like practicing the Buddha's teachings to attain freedom from suffering. But even that makes people sneer. 
If we look at those with limited aspirations, we attach to as friends in this light. It helps to release the mind from the attachment, at least a bit, and we can be happy to be, lo- to be alone with our practice. Shantideva goes on to list more disadvantages of the longing for such friends. But before we continue with that, let's set our motivation for the program as we usually do. And, as usual if you can, please motivate that the positive energy from our discussion becomes a cause for the enlightenment of all beings everywhere. If that is not possible, at least may it become the cause for your own quick enlightenment. Thank you. And now carrying on, Shanti Davis says, They are angry when something of benefit is said, and they also turn me away from what is beneficial. If I do not listen to what they say, they become angry and hence proceed to lower realms. They are envious of superiors, competitive with equals, arrogant towards inferiors, conceited when praised, and if anything unpleasant is said, they become angry. Never is any benefit derived from the childish. Of course, people are not always as dangerous as Shantideva describes in these verses. But while we associate with them, we can always expect at some stage or the other to experience such negative attitudes and behaviours. People who do not see the need to take control of their minds often act mindlessly out of their conditioning and so have the ever-present potential to snap back angrily even when you say something that will help them. And they will expect you to live according to their standards even if it means breaking your vows. And if you want to stay friends with them, it is easy to feel pressured to do so. Westerners, unfamiliar with Buddhism in particular, often don't understand what it means to take a precept. And when you say that you can't do something because of a vow, they become scornful or angry. For instance, following the monk's vows, I don't eat after the midday meal. But in the past, people have become irritated when I turn down a dinner invitation even while I was draped in my robes. Then, as Shantideva says, it's a mark of worldly people to be jealous of those above them, competitive with those they regard as equals, and haughty with anyone they believe is beneath them. The commercial world in particular seems to encourage such attitudes in people whose main concern is to make money and to become upwardly mobile. In his commentary, His Holiness the Dalai Lama explains that such people dominated by gross attachment and aversion are just like children, and if we follow them, we will benefit neither ourselves nor them. No matter how hard we try, we can never fully please such people. However, Pema Children writes that it would be simple if we have these biases to superiors, equals, inferiors to turn them into Dharma practice. With our superiors, we could practice sympathetic joy, she says. Thus, by waking our Bodhi heart, their station would bring us benefit. Instead of being competitive with equals, we could practice kindness and respect. And with those below, we could practice compassion. We only get it wrong out of habit, and by doing so, we miss valuable opportunities. I also think that we can keep in mind that our judgment of others to be superior, equal or inferior usually only applies in a narrow context. For instance, let's assume that when Einstein was working in the patent office before he became famous, he had a boss who was very good at filing patents. 
Maybe Einstein was more interested in the effects of the speed of light than patent filings, so his boss was definitely a superior in terms of patents. However, we all know who ruled when it came to the theories of relativity. Between these two, who was the superior and who the inferior? It may be a bit of a silly example, but it shows how a person might be high up in one context, but not much top in another. I'm sure you can think of more fitting examples in your own experience. So it's foolish to use such judgments as criteria for attitude. Shantideva continues, Through associating with the childish, they will certainly ensure unwholesomeness, such as praising myself and belittling others, and discussing the joys of cyclic existence. What often happens when we get emotionally entangled with childish folk is that we egg each other on, explains Pema Chodron. Building ourselves up, putting others down, regaling in the joys of cyclic existence, our wonderful vacation, an excellent bottle of wine, we get further enmeshed in transitory pleasures. At this stage of the path, it is very easy to get hooked into each other's dramas, and it is very dangerous. The support we need to dissolve these old patterns, Shantideva says again, will come from finding time for solitude. Developing myself to others in this way will bring about nothing but misfortune, because they will not benefit me and I shall not benefit them. I should flee far away from childish people. When they are encountered, though, I should please them by being happy. I should behave well merely out of courtesy, but not become greatly familiar. Of course, having the body sought for aspiration, we are committed to go out into the community and do what we can to help others. However, we have to be careful about the essentially trivial mini-dramas that worldly people create. It's very easy to become caught up in them, and often they just bring us sorrow. When I was an actor at a community theatre many years ago, the theatre had a crisis between a couple of member factions, though I can't remember what it was about any longer. One of the theatre members was a well-respected and impartial man who was asked to mediate. He did his best, but after the dust had settled, he said he would never do anything like that again. As Shanti Davis says, getting involved in the petty likes and dislikes of what he calls childish people brings nothing but misfortune and doesn't help anybody. If we are practicing to develop a stable meditative concentration, it can be disastrous. Our mind gets caught up in all sorts of arguments and discussions and it becomes impossible to progress in our practice. So Shantideva recommends we stay as far from such people as possible. Without being discourteous, we discourage anything but superficial relationships with them as far as we can. You may have heard of the great Tibetan meditator Milarepa. I've spoken about him before in these programs. He was the one that meditated in the mountains for many years with only nettle tea for nutrition. When he eventually came down, the nettle tea had coloured his skin and all his clothes had disintegrated. So he wandered about green and stark naked. Anyway, a couple once wanted to adopt him so that he could look after them when they got old, but he would have none of it. They got into a discussion of needing people for friendship and intimacy. What about having friends? It is so sad and pathetic not to have anyone you are close to, relative or friend, the couple said to him. 
Geshe Dagi, a great Tibetan master of our era who founded a center in Dunedin, paraphrased Milarepa's answer like this. When you first meet them, they're all smiles, so pleasant, they make you feel so happy. Then they pour out tales and talk and news, they invite you here and there, and you never have a moment to yourself. Then you have to go back home to visit all their relatives. They pour out all their news to you, and you have no peace at all. After that, you exchange gifts and food, you prepare meals for each other. Eventually, you start to compete with each other. Each needs to know what the other has been doing. They become jealous, and rivalries spring up. If you've never been close to anyone, there are no disagreements. But when you make friends, you're bound to have arguments. When people gossip, they gossip about the people closest to them. If you live close to someone, you'll always find fault. Those who are not friends will leave you alone, but friends who come to visit you will then go and gossip about faults they find in you. I don't want such friends and relatives who want to take advantage of my happy moments and don't want to share my unhappy moments, Milarepa said. And so Shantideva continues, In the same way as a bee takes honey from a flower, I should take merely what is necessary for the practice of Dharma, but remain unfamiliar as though I had never seen them before. Attachment, His Holiness says, is one of the most adverse conditions to cultivating single-pointed concentration. With attachment comes excitement and scattering, which hinder single-pointed cultivation. Of these two, excitement is worse. For example, in the present moment, you recall past pleasurable experiences and excitement arises, and you cannot maintain a mental stability on the object. So to maintain single-pointed concentration, excitement must be eradicated. The excitement His Holiness is talking about here is brought about by the mind that wanders to an object of attachment. Scattering is the mind that wanders to an object other than the one we are meditating on, but not an object of attachment. For instance, while sitting in meditative concentration in your hut in the forest, you hear a noise and your mind might stray to wondering what the possums outside are doing. You have no particular liking or disliking for possums. You just have random thoughts initiated by the noise. This is scattering. However, if your mind gets involved with thoughts and longings for your partner while sitting in meditation, you are giving in to excitement. The distinction is made because it's much harder to bring your mind back from excitement than it is from scattering. So excitement is regarded as worse than scattering. His Holiness then goes on to compare excitement and laxity. Laxity is the state where the object of concentration is stable but not clear. It's not a state in which the mind loses the object completely through heaviness or sleep. His Holiness goes on, Excitement leads us to lose mental stability and laxity leads, leads to a loss of alertness, attentiveness and mental clarity. Excitement and laxity are hindrances to achieving single-pointed concentration. The main practice of the Bodhisattva is Bodhicitta. In this text, the special technique of equalizing and exchanging self for others is taught to develop bodhicitta. First of all, you need to view all beings as neutral, as the same. The ordinary mind views the enemy with aversion and close ones with attachment. This attachment to one's close ones is among the greatest hindrances to bodhicitta, for it naturally leads to aversion to the enemies and a neutral stance to someone who is indifferent. 
For a real equanimity for all beings, temporarily you have to detach yourself from attachment to your close ones. For this, the contemplation on friends we talked about earlier is very useful. It is part of the meditation on friend, enemy and stranger that shows us how easily friends become enemies, enemies become friends and strangers become either one or the other. Relying on the categories of friend, enemy and stranger only leads to unhappiness and turmoil. So to attain mental equilibrium we have to decondition our minds from seeing people in such terms. And one of the best ways to do this is to go into solitude and learn to be emotionally self-sufficient. In her commentary on this last verse, Pema Children tells us that the way, to get, the way we get hooked by relationships always pulls us down. Like a bee that gets stuck extracting honey from flowers, she writes, when we overindulge in gossiping, boasting and slander, it's lethal. We could stay on good terms with each other without getting hooked. Like wise bees, we can get what sustains our good heart without getting hopelessly trapped. These teachings can be very challenging and somewhat insulting or disturbing. But truthfully, do we use our current relationships to awaken bodhicitta? Most of us have no desire to be malicious or cause harm. We see our practice as a way of involving ourselves with sentient beings, not avoiding them. But as long as we are so easily triggered and seduced, we need solitude to deepen our stability and awareness. Then she uses a rather nice metaphor. She writes, It's like becoming a brain surgeon. If this were truly our aspiration, we'd go to medical school for intensive training and not try it out at home. Shantideva isn't saying not to have friends or to keep company with others. He's giving us advice for becoming less reactive and more wise. The stability of the mind is like a candle flame that at this point is very vulnerable. Solitude is like a glass chimney that keeps it from being blown out in the wind. When the flame is stable, we can take the cover off. The wind is no longer a threat. Now, in fact, it will make the flame burn like a bonfire. She then goes on to say that as she gets older, the more she likes spending time in retreat. However, living for many months alone in a hut is not so practical for many people, so she recommends we meditate regularly each day and do short retreats, a day or a weekend whenever we can. The main point, she says, is to make solitude a part of your life. In order to work with difficult outer circumstances, we need to gather our inner strength. If even 10 or 20 minutes of meditation a day helps us to do this, let's go for it. Making good use of our limited time, the limited time from birth until death, as well as our limited time each day, is the key to developing inner steadiness and calm. And she uses an example of the grandmother of Tibetan master Dziga Kontrol. Her life was extremely demanding, writes Pema Chodron. But even though she worked hard from early morning until late at night, she became a highly realized person by practicing in the gaps. Whenever she wasn't talking to somebody, she would relax her mind and be present. Whether she was milking the cows, washing dishes, or walking from here to there, she used any opportunity to settle and expand her mind. With every pause, she found outer solitude and thus discovered an inner solitude that was unshakable and profound.
Shantideva now goes on to talk about the disastrous lure of wealth, reputation and fame. I have much material wealth as well as honor, and many people like me. Nurturing self-importance in this way, I shall be made terrified after death. So, you thoroughly confused mind, by the piling up of whatever objects you are attached to, misery a thousandfold will ensue. The more we accustom our minds to seeing wealth and reputation as the goal of life, the more difficult it will be at death time when we have to leave everything we have worked for behind. I have mentioned before a man I knew when I was a young man in South Africa who was one of the chief officers in a corporate chemical company. He made lots of money and eventually bought the company out and amassed a very great fortune with a reputation to match. However, the last time I saw him, he'd retired and looking back on all he'd achieved, he could find no meaning in it. It had been fun while it lasted, but in the end he was left a physically comfortable but mentally confused old man. Younger men ruled the world and his reputation had become a fading memory. He may well be dead by now, but imagine dying with a mind of questions like that and nothing to hold on to. Sad to say, his eldest son is following in his footsteps. How much better it would have been for him if he devoted his spare time to solitude and mental realizations. Thus Shantideva says that in our conf confusion, while we are heaping up mountains of wealth, we are also creating much bigger mountains of unhappiness. Pema Chodron points out that the great Tibetan teacher and meditator Dilgo Pekensi Rinpoche said that good fortune is sometimes harder to work with than bad. He calls it positive obstacles. When someone is angry with us, it might remind, remind us to meditate on patience, says Pema Chodron. When we get sick, our suffering can put us in touch with the pain of others. When things go well, however, our mind easily accepts this. Like oil absorbing into our skin, attachment to favorable circumstances blends smoothly and invisibly into our thoughts and feelings. Without realizing what's happening, we can become infatuated with our achievements, fame and wealth. It's difficult to extract ourselves from positive obstacles. If we could have everything we wish for, wealth, a comfortable house, nice clothing, he advises us to view this good fortune as illusory, like a beautiful dream, and not let it seduce us into complacency. Otherwise, we will get caught up in the classic trap, in which no matter what we have, what we can achieve, it is never enough. We will always want more. Hence, the why should not be attached, says Shantideva, because fear is born from attachment. With a firm mind, understand well that it is the nature of these things to be discarded. Although I may have much material wealth, be famous and well spoken of, whatever fame and renown I've amassed has no power to accompany me after death. Like my friend in South Africa, many people throughout history have chased wealth and fame and in the process have created much negativity. While we are alive and achieving things, we easily get caught up, forgetting that each moment is one moment closer to death. Looking into the future, we think in terms of a happy, comfortable retirement, not in terms of death, even though whether we, whether we will ever get to retirement is uncertain, while there is no uncertainty about dying. Death for us has become an entertainment. 
We get thrills from watching people dying in various horrible ways on a TV or movie screen, blotting out of our minds that our death will be much more fearful, even if not as violent. It will be more scary because it will be the dissolution of all we've built up, all we've accumulated. We will have to leave everything we've become familiar with and especially everything that has given us the illusion of comfort and security. What are the use of the fame and wealth of Michael Jackson to him now? Millions of fans may still hang his picture on their walls, say his name with reverence, and play his music to distraction, but it's all useless. It won't help him, and it doesn't help his fans. It's just a waste of precious life. And this is true of all those who crave for wealth and reputation. They may get a fortune to rival that of Bill Gates and a reputation greater than Nelson Mandela's, but in the end both are meaningless, as reliable as sea spray blown about by the wind. Their only legacy is the mind's dissatisfaction and craving, foundation stones for a wretched future life. You may make the argument, though, as Pema Children does, that worldly comforts can help us on our path to awakening. We have more resources and time to devote to meditation and helping others. Usually, however, Pema Children writes, they lure us into further busyness and craving, so we have to be careful. Not even monks are immune. I know of young Tibetan monastics who have, one way or, the, or another, made their way to the West. They seem to like America the most, but one or two have come to New Zealand, only to be caught up in the materialistic culture, disrobe, marry and buy into what Zorba the Greek calls the whole catastrophe. Though even Zorba may not have realized what a catastrophe it really is. It is so alluring, but at the same time it is so fearsome. But that is the friendship of attachment. Attachment is like someone who promises you so much, but in the end just delivers you into the arms of sorrow. And now Shantideva dips into the last two of the eight worldly concerns, Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disgrace, praise and blame. If there is someone who despises me, what pleasure can I have in being praised? And if there is another who praises me, what displeasure can I have in being despised? If even the conqueror was unable to please the various inclinations of different beings, then what need to mention an evil person such as I? Therefore, I should give up the intention to associate with the worldly. We are usually so sensitive to what others say about us. A single word of praise can make, make us feel so very happy, while a critical word sends us into depression. But, says Shantideva, this is ridiculous. Someone might praise me, but at the same time, I can easily find someone else who has nothing good to say about me. Similarly, when someone runs me down, it is not, not difficult to remember another person who admires something about me. So why do I countenance all these up-and-down emotional reactions to praise and blame? In another context, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says it is best to regard praise and blame as the wind blowing behind your ear, for it is absolutely certain that you will not be liked by everyone. Even the Buddha, even Christ, even His Holiness the Dalai Lama could not claim that all beings admire them. And so, if the greatest, greatest sense of this world cannot be pleasing to everyone, why do we make such a fuss when someone sneers at us or praises us? 
The point is that another person's view of me is not dependent only upon myself. It is also heavily dependent on all the conditioning the other person brings to the situation and the current circumstances. In fact, my role in the situation may actually be quite small, even though I'm the object of the praise or blame. If we can keep our cool and remain aware of what is actually going on during praise or blame, often we will find there's really nothing to be aroused about one way or the other. We can stay mindful, let it all go, and get on with our lives. This is very important if we have the intention to develop meditative stability. Store situations of praise and blame in our minds, and they will pop up when we least want them to, as we sit trying to concentrate one-pointedly. And now we must say goodbye, for time is up once more. Please dedicate any positive energy from our program today to the enlightenment of all beings everywhere. Thank you, and have a wonderful week. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering.